Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and on today's episode, we are joined by Ingrid Rojas Contreras, an award-winning author to talk about her new memoir, The Man Who Could Move Clouds. The book focuses on what her family called The Secrets, their power to talk to the dead, tell the future, treat the sick, and even move the clouds, and what happened when Ingrid's amnesia experience was mistaken for an inherited extrasensory gift. Today, we talk about this stunning memoir, the need to believe in ghosts, and so much more. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love this show and want more of it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. We've got bonus episodes, an active Discord community, monthly book club meetups, and much more. It's also a great way for you to show your support for the work we do on this independent podcast every single week. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. And shout out to our newest member, Beverly Burgess, and a huge thank you to every single person in the Stacks Pack. All right, let's get to it. My chat with Ingrid Rojas Contreras. All right, everybody. I am really excited. I am joined today by Ingrid Rojas Contreras, who is the author of the brand new The Man Who Could Move Clouds, which is her memoir. I want to talk about genre, but before we do, welcome to the sex. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. I took a lot of notes reading your book because so many different things came up for me. So I'm going to try really hard to get to all of them. But if I don't, I'm sorry. But where I want to start, I guess, is where we sort of always start, which is can you just tell people a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I grew up in Colombia and I came to the U.S. when I was uh, 17. I started to write, I think, right around then or trying, you know, taking it more seriously then. Uh, The first place that I lived in was Chicago, where the winter was completely shocking to me. (laughs) And now luckily I live um, in the Bay Area in San Francisco where the weather is just very very agreeable. (laughs) I'm from the Bay Area, so it makes me happy that you're there. I'm from Oakland. (laughs) Oh, I love Oakland. Yeah, same. I want to talk about genre with you because this book 
is one of those like genre bending books. I feel like I was as I was reading it, I was writing down like at first I was like, oh, it's an adventure story. And then I was like, oh, it's a coming of age story. And then I was like, is this magical realism? Is that possible? (laughs) Is that allowed in nonfiction? Like, I don't know. So I want to know how much you as you're writing are thinking about genre. And if you're not thinking about it when you're writing, are you ever thinking about it? Or is that a job in your mind for someone else? Oh, I love this question. I think initially I was just trying to follow the story as it was uh, revealing itself to me. And it did kind of begin with this, you know, magical quest that my aunt and or two aunts and my mother got in a dream. Um, So, you know, so that it already has that kind of energy. Yeah. And I think that what I was trying to do was tell the story how we would tell it to ourselves. Mm. And I think that one of the things that happened in literature that was maybe like a disservice to South America was the understanding of magical realism as a fictional invention. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I think a lot of the boom writers were in interviews uh, constantly talking about how it was world view based and that uh, that those kinds of stories, you know, like, you know, to have a story like mine, for example, like with my grandfather, who people said could move clouds, sounds like it belongs in a magical realism novel. And I think that what I wanted people to realize is that it's the other way around, that magical Mm. realism actually resembles what life is like, how we live our Mm. lives in in South America and like the stories that we tell, that sense that we have as as South Americans of, of, you know, being in a a very porous state and, you know, having all this communion with uh, you know, family members who are gone and we continue to talk to them and have relationships mm-hmm. with them. So, yeah, so I think I was just trying to be as faithful as possible to to what that life was like. And I, I think that I was, the, if the one thing that I was trying to be aware of was trying to keep it that instead of me mediating for someone who's not from the culture mm-hmm. and, you know, having kind of, yeah, having that, um, I guess, translation and be like, yeah, I understand that this is not something that you may have lived or heard or, you know, (laughs) experienced before. Um, Yeah. So I think that was maybe like the only thing that I was thinking about as I was as I was drafting. Um, I want to come back to this, but I realized I didn't tell anybody what your book was about. I just dove in and people (laughs) are probably like, what the fuck are they talking about? (laughs) Um, So in your memoir, basically you and your mother and your aunts and your cousin kind of start this start start the journey to exhume your grandfather because he's come to them in a dream essentially saying that that's what he wants and in yes. in addition to that you and your mother have both had these like near death experiences where you lose your memory and so you're sort of weaving together this and that this adventure to to your grandfather, both you and your mother's experiences and how they're related, and then also your grandfather's work as a healer in the community, et cetera. How did I do? Yeah, uh, I think you did well. <laughs> I, you know, like when I was writing this story, I it it was amazing to me how how the story just kept getting bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. I think initially I was just like, I want to write a story that's about 
curanderos, uh, medicine people. Uh, my grandfather and my mother were curanderos. And that was the project of the book. And then I think because it's memoir, like along the thing, along the way things happened that I, you know, wasn't planning for. <laughs> right, but one right, of right. them was that I, yeah, I, I was in this accident, in a bike accident, and I lost my memory. And when I, when my memories returned, I remembered that my mother had had an accident and that uh, she had also lost her memory. And so in, because I was writing a book that had to do with stories repeating across generations. So, you know, things that had happened in my grandfather's life that then happened in my mother's life, that when I had that parallel between me and my mother, suddenly that became the story. And mm -hmm. that felt like a lot to hold in one book. And then as, as I was getting ready to be like, okay, that's the book that I'm writing. It's about healers and it's about amnesia, like the end. My <laughs> two of my aunts and then my mom had this shared dream uh, where my grandfather came to each of them and said, I want my remains to, to be moved. And I remember that week of, you know, one of them called the other to tell, like, I, I dreamt this thing. And then my aunt would be like, what do you mean I dreamt the same thing? Um, <laughs> because it happened to three of them. We we were like, OK, well, that's like a peer reviewed style yeah. dream and so we have to do it and so then the memoir became like okay it's about curanderos and losing your memory and now we're going to Colombia to unearth my grandfather who this book is about so it just kind of all happened in that very wild way and I think I tried to write the book that way too because it felt like such a yeah such a wild confluence of of things you were so your accident was like 10 years ago. Yeah, 2007. Right? Yeah. So even more. Yeah. So you were already writing this book. You had a version of this book in 2007. Yeah, I I was trying to you know what I did over and over again since then is I was trying to write the beginning of the memoir. Mm -hmm. And it was something I just always knew that I wanted to write about my grandfather. Oh yeah, so it must have been after because I, it's been like uh, seven years before uh, mm -hmm. when the book came out. I, I was trying to write the beginning of the memoir over and over again. So I have this <laughs> folder in my computer that's just, you know, trying to do chapter one. And there's like, <laughs> there's maybe like, yeah, 50 of them or something. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, so how did you know when this chapter one was right? I think that I just had to do with. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's so many layers to the story, and I had to figure mm -hmm. out how to introduce Amnesia Curanderos and, like, this travel thing, this right, dream right. thing. I actually wrote it uh, when I was on tour for my novel. Is okay. I was, I was like, in airplanes and in hotel rooms, and there was one, one of those days where I suddenly figured it out and just I knew in my body that it was the right order mm. and like the right way to, to tell it. And once I found that door, then I wrote the rest of the memoir. And so, yeah, it happened very quickly after that. So, right. yeah, so rewrote the beginning, you know, for seven years. And then since 2018, <laughs> through pandemic, I wrote um, the rest of the novel or the memoir. Did you, so your first book that came out was a novel. 
And now this is a memoir. Did you ever worry or have feelings about doing fiction or nonfiction or were, were you pressured to stick to fiction or was there any like conversation around that in your experience? I was lucky that I didn't hear any of those concerns. And I think I was just very excited about the two stories. And I've never felt limited by that boundary. Like I don't, I don't, when I see an author do different things, I'm, I don't have any response to it. I'm just excited about what they're doing. Um, Same. Yeah. So I think for myself, I just didn't, I didn't have that feeling. Both my agent and my editor, when I told them about it, were like very excited. And they mm. also didn't give me, um, yeah, there wasn't like any, any one comment about me switching genre at all. So it always felt very like the natural thing to do. Mm -hmm. I like that. I also, I think if you do it well, I don't think it matters. I do have feelings about people switching when they do it not well, but I think it's more (laughs) just that I have feelings about people doing things not well. You know what I mean? Like it's more just like I wasted time reading this book. I hate it. But I think if you could do it, you could do it. But I also think this book, The Man Who Can Move Clouds, like you were saying that magical realism is real life and it it's not isolated to fiction. I think that was what I really enjoyed about this book is that it felt like the way that you were telling the story felt like how you would tell a fiction story. Mm-hmm. And so it was really easy to like get immersed into. And I think I love nonfiction, but I think people who struggle with nonfiction struggle with the rigidity of it or like that it's boring. And in this book, I really was like, I'm on this adventure story. Like I'm learning interesting things. Oh, here's a little bit of history. Like it was like you were finding ways to like bring it all in. And so even though this book is nonfiction, it feels like fiction. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Does that make yeah. sense? No, I yeah, I know what you mean. I think Often the world building can be very hard, especially for parts where you're mm. not in it. And I mm-hmm. think that I was very lucky that I could, you know, for example, when I'm like describing my mother, Samnisha, what that, what that mm-hmm. was like. Um, she, my mother is someone who tells me stories constantly and she loves to repeat the stories. Mm. But she's such a good storyteller that I sometimes I just let her do it. And I just like listen to a story that I've <laughs> that I've listened to a lot and I just let her do it because it's so good. So I just I really had the privilege of a lot of the stories that I'm telling in the book. I've heard at least 20 times and mm. that even as I so, you know, when somebody tells you a story over and over again, what can happen is that the details of the world building start to emerge. Mm-hmm. You know, like the first time mm-hmm. that they tell it, they might just tell you like the, the plot line. And then if they tell you the story a second time, they might tell you like, oh, it was sunny that day, right? Like slowly the details start to emerge. And I also, you know, as I was writing, if there was ever something that I wasn't sure about, I I could just call her and say like, Mm. oh, I just wrote this. Was it like this? And sometimes she would correct me and say like, no, I would actually describe it like this. So it was a very... Because I had like that closeness and I felt like I could, I could really do it. And then whenever in the memoir, there's, I'm quoting my grandfather, I'm actually quoting my mother, quoting my grandfather. Mm, So, yeah, so I I really had like a lot of fun gathering um, 
like all of those, yeah, all of those, the materials and the interviews and figuring out what parts of history I could speak to the memoir. It was just like mm-hmm. very, it was incredibly fun to do. I love that. One of the things that you talk about sort of later in the book, or maybe it's in the middle, it's in the second half, you talk about why Americans don't believe in ghosts. Uh-huh. And I thought that it was like, so, I mean, I'm an American, so I'm capable of making everything about me, which is one of my passion projects is to make everything about me. But I would love for you to talk <laughs> a little bit about that because I just like, you talked about like the hit, like how history and ghost stories and like, I don't know, just would you talk about that? Because I found yeah. it fascinating. Yeah. I was just um, thinking about how how different you feel about your life if you do believe in ghosts or you you have that very useful framework of ghosts what it means is that you have a literal relationship to the past Mm. um and you really have this very literal relationship to what your ancestors did or if you're mixed and you have that little you know relationship within yourself of like what that means and in colombia we have this this national you know ghost story that we have where we there's there's treasures that are have been buried and if if they're old or from colombia colonial times then we say that they're cursed um and they're called guacas so people who in the present who try to like unearth it and you know they just you know unearth it without being careful that you can get infected by like a ghost gold fever and you know as as a storyteller like listening to that story i can both hold someone's experience of of telling me what that was like like I I was interviewing um or just actually talking to this waiter in near Ocaña where where all, all of the memoir takes place and he was telling me that his uncle um dug up one of these cursed treasures enchanted treasures and that since then he started to be uh haunted by like the gold. So I should say, so like he, he like dug up where the treasure would be and mm-hmm. there was nothing there. So like the, go, the, the treasure disappeared. There's nothing there. Right. And then since then, he started to hear the sound of uh, gold coins falling mm-hmm. and, and he would kind of like dig up wherever he heard the sound because he felt like the, the treasure was, was calling to him. Um, so, we, so we say that that's like the ghost gold fever. And to me, that's like a very literal connection to the past and to thinking about how, how, what that was like in colonial times, you know, Mm. how, you know, what, what happened to all of the resources and all of the Colombian tribes and how they were robbed of their belongings and their treasure and, and Spain's quest for gold that really kind of invited a lot of violence to the, to the country. So that ghost story is a way for anyone to kind of be aware of what that is, of like that greed. And yeah, so I think in the US, I hear a lot of denial of history. So I hear a lot of... uh, (laughs) It's like the understatement of the year. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of denial of history. um, And so I think it makes sense to me that people also don't believe in ghosts. Because if you, Mm. if there can't even be like an acceptance of like, this is what happened then we can't even begin to, you know, deal with, think about, embrace, you know, look back to have a relationship with what the history is right. and what our, what our 
places in that or like what, what the context is. So I really think it's the difference between living and then feeling like you are connected and part of the lineage and being aware of the, the dangers and like the good parts of that lineage or just thinking that you live in isolation and that you're unique and that history is now and has never happened before, which right. I which I think is like a lot of um, Americans, you know, tend to think that way. Yeah. And I think that also with that, like in addition to not having this connection to the past, there's also no responsibility to the past or the future. You right. know, it's like how you can be in a place where there, you know, there's a not everybody, but that there's a large faction of people in America who don't believe in global warming. It's like because you don't feel responsible to the land or the people who have come before you or who will come after you. And I just I found that part of your book. It really clicked to me because also what you're saying is like in Colombia, there's a cultural belief in the history in the past. Whereas in America, when I think of ghosts, it's so often like, do you believe in ghosts, uh-huh. individual? You know, it's yeah. not like, oh, we as a nation believe, you know, like, I, like, I never thought about ghosts much until my father passed away. And now I'm like, oh, yes, there are definitely ghosts. Like, but that's because mm-hmm. there is no greater cultural conversation around ghost stories. And so it's something that I had to experience for myself. Yeah. It's just really yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the the idea of like thinking about hauntings and like creating a haunting that it can change the way that you yeah, you're in relationship with people in the world. You know, like it might change like uh well, I don't want to wrong this person because I don't want them to haunt me. You know, right, or like right, right, right. I know that my people in my lineage did this and therefore I, I need some kind of reckoning with this to like appease or to meet what happened before. Mm, um, yeah. And so I feel like the the framework of ghosts is something that provides um, a process and a structure to be in conversation with the past and also, you know, thinking about how we want to be in the future. Yeah. Cause you can, you person, or people or family can reconcile, you know, wrongdoings and other things in your life that maybe your ancestors had done or vice versa, like something that they'd done great that you get to bring forward. Like it connects you. Yeah. Yeah. In such a powerful way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's so needed. And I, what I've heard often is, uh, well, that, that was my grandfather. I didn't do it. Like, why should I have to do anything about this? But yeah, but if with the framework of ghosts, then we suddenly can think about what are the debts that we inherit um, mm-hmm. and how can we kind of begin to think about those debts? What what gestures might need, might we do now to appease, you know, the ghosts that are following us? Right, um, right. So it, it really kind of provides this, yeah, this this beautiful, it can be like a very beautiful place to to, to think about those things. Right. I mean, hearing you just say debts, like it's making me think of how, you know, there's like good debt and like bad debt. And it's making me think of how like being born with some sort of debt that is connected to your family line is actually a really beautiful thing because it gives you some purpose in life. Right. Like you could use that as a motivation for something in your own lifetime and pass that on, you know. I like that a lot, actually. And I never your book really like opened up my thinking to 
what is possible and what is necessary when it comes to generational responsibility, I guess mm, is how I would I put it. I, well, I love your books. So. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you, so in the book, when you're in your bike accident, you mentioned that you were translating something. And I'm curious if you have any interest to translate books from Spanish to English or English to Spanish? And if so, are there any that you're particularly interested in doing? I, yeah, I, I love um, translation. I think that I, yeah, it's, it's something that I want to do. And the, I started to translate, I think the, 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 the things that I was playing with is I, I started to translate um, some of Onetti's stories and he's the Chilean writer um is his name I can't remember his name is it I'll put it in the show notes yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'll find it I'll put it in the show notes. yes and I I love there's there's some short stories that he has that are very airy and part of the the thing that is very attractive to me is that it seems like they're they work very well in Spanish and I'm not sure how they would work in English. So that feels like mm. a very interesting problem to me. Yeah. So I, I think I would probably be attracted to this, to the stories where like the language seems like it's just made for Spanish and then having that creative problem of how do you actually make this work for, for English would be really fun to figure out. So I, I think in the future, definitely I will, I will try it out. Okay. That's exciting. One of the other things that I want to talk about about the book, and then we have to transition, is gender and like what's allowed, and this idea of like deviance and and secret keeping, and you know what's okay and what's not okay for women and men. How how did you approach that part of the story? Because I feel like there's a version in which it reflects poorly on on people you know like where it's like this this community or like people in Colombia have a closed-minded view or something and then there's the version that you did where it's actually like really expansive so I'm wondering how you kind of went into that and were able to make something that made that kind of opened up the conversation instead of shutting it down which I think so often happens when we talk about gender in South America yeah. I I think I was I was trying, I mean, it, it just, gender very, at the beginning, just came into the story. And mm-hmm. the, the first kind of inkling that I had that gender would have a lot to do with the story was that um, in my father, my grandfather's tr- tradition of curanderos, because he came from a whole lineage of men who had been curanderos, the women couldn't be initiated into, into that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And there was this belief that if a woman was initiated, then some disaster would happen. Right. So I, you know, already had a lot of questions about what, why that is, or like, is that a real thing? Or like, where does that actually come from? And to have my mother, you know, through her accident where she, I guess we should say she, she fell down a well that was mm-hmm. empty and she hit her head and that's how she got amnesia was from that accident. That accident was also when she woke up from it, she could, she started to see ghosts and hear voices. So in the family, my, my grandfather would have never taught her how to be right. a curandera. 
And it was only because of this accident and her her starting to see and hear ghosts that he, you know, he and everyone in the family said like the the accident was the portal into this knowledge for her. Right. And so it just kind of came to her on its own naturally. And then he started to show her things. So I really love this idea of, yeah, seeing right away, but there's like a, a forbidding, like women are not allowed into this. And in mm -hmm. fact, like if, if women are, are allowed, things will go wrong. Right. Um, and then having in my mother someone who is... I mean, as it, as it just happened, but she kind of infiltrated that and then, right. you know, became, became a curandera. How that charted everything else that I was thinking about in the memoir, where how, you know, in what ways are the, are the women in the book limited by the culture? And then in what ways are they breaking through? Or what is that meeting with those limitations? And what does that look like? So, yeah, so it started very early on. And I think I also in the book, there's like a lot of men who initially felt about it one way and then through the memoir changed their mm -hmm. opinion about what it is. And that seems important to me to have in, in the book because I, I mean, I, I think that we have a lot of stories about men doing something wrong and mm -hmm. we don't have enough stories about what it looks like for a man to do something wrong and then over time change. Right. Right. Um, right. Yeah. That's so interesting. Okay. I'm saving a lot of my questions about how you approach writing for our conversation later about our book club pick, which is how to write an autobiographical novel by Alexander Chi. So we're going to kind of pause this stuff because I have a lot of questions that I think are going to come up from that. And we're going to quickly take a break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, we're back, and I did not prepare you for this, but this is our Ask the Stack segment where someone's written in for a book recommendation. So I'm going to read what they said, and then you're going to tell us a book recommendation, and I'll also tell us one too. Um, though I picked this one specifically for you because I, I was like, I think Ingrid will have an answer that I would not think of. So Jolene asks, I've read and loved Homegoing, Pachinko, and The Mountain Sing. I'd love a book recommendation for another multi-generational family story where at least half of the book is set in a country other than the United States. I obviously thought this was good for you because your book is multi-generational and it's set not in the United States. So I will give a few if you want to take a second to think and then you can go. So the first, so first of all, I should say this. The two, two of the books that I have for you, I have not read in a very long time. So I actually don't know how I feel about them anymore. But the first one is Cutting for Stone by Abraham Verghese, which is this book about these two twins and and it's about it takes place in Ethiopia and one of them's a doctor and he's dealing with women who are giving birth and having fistulas and while i don't remember much about the actual book i just know that i really loved this book and i <laughs> like whenever i think about it i'm like oh cutting for stone and i know that i like read abraham verghese's memoir after because i loved it so much so that's one the second one I did not like, but everyone who I know who's read it loved it, is The Namesake by Jhumpa Lahiri. It's a little fictiony for me, but it's about a family who's in Calcutta. They move to the United States. It's an arranged marriage. They have a son, Gogol. They People love the book. It was my NYU freshman year like mandatory read. So I read it in 2004, and I don't remember it at all, except for that I thought it was boring. However, Literally every other person on the face of the earth thinks it's fantastic. And then the last one is The Arsonist City by Hala Alian. I hope I did that right. And it's about these three siblings and their parents. And they, the dad is like trying to sell the family house. And they have to go to the family house, which is in Libya. Did I make that up? I, don't know. I can't exactly yeah. remember. Anyways, it's somewhere. I can't remember. It, maybe it's Libya. Maybe it's not. It's no, it's Lebanon. It's Lebanon. Sorry, everyone. Anyways, so it's family drama, multi-generational. A lot of it is set in Lebanon. Okay. Ingrid, what do you have for us? I was thinking of uh The God of Small Things by Ernest mm. Roy. And yeah, I I just felt like the I I still remember the experience of what it was like to open that book to the first page mm. for the first time. 
And I can still recall what that first sentence was like and how it just affected me and just um, I could feel everything in my body. And I just love the language in that in that book so much. And it's one of the things that I really loved is how political that book is and how much it is still situated in like the the point of view of young people um, mm. in the first half of the book. I, I think I've read that one maybe like a few times, like maybe four times. Such a beautiful novel. Great. Okay, Jolene, if you read any of our suggestions, let us know what you think. And everybody else, if you want a book recommendation from the show, email askthestacks at thestackspodcast.com. All right, Ingrid, you are officially in the Stacks question hot seat. We always start here. Two books you love, one book you hate. I, uh, okay, I just like immediately went to the one that I hate. Um, right, love it, uh, love it. On the Road. Cormac McCarthy or whatever. Oh, sorry, um, the Jack Kerouac. Oh, Jack Kerouac. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The Road the is road. Cormac McCarthy. Sorry, on the Road is on Jack road. Kerouac. Okay, you're right, you're right. Um, I just can't, I just can't stand it. <laughs> I've never read it Don't but you're not the it. first person to say that book yeah. someone else said I can't remember um, who but people hate it's it ju- it's just um, I just don't think that it that it stands up to the test of time it just feels mm. like I mean it's about male friendship there's a lot of sexism and it doesn't you know it, it feels very energetic uh, but mm-hmm. it has like this vague energy to it. So it mm. feels like vaguely energetic. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I just I just don't don't like that book at all. Postcolonial Love Poem by Natalie Diaz is a book that I love. And I re- reread it a bunch of times during pandemic. Natalie Diaz was telling me that she wrote a lot of it while in the bathtub. And she's a little bit of a bathtub mm. writer. And okay. I and I read that book over and over again in the bathtub. So I feel okay. like the bathtub is the place to be. <laughs> I'm a big reading. bathtub reader. So now yeah. I'm like, maybe I should read that in the bathtub and we can all talk about our bathtub it is, reads. Yeah, it's like all about it just it it tries to think about water and mm. what water means in the land and in our bodies and to history and just all of these very beautiful connections. So I feel like if you're in water reading postcolonial love poem, it's just, a, um, just such an amazing experience. And then the other book that I really love that has just been like a favorite for, for a long time is Pedro Paramo by Juan Rulfo. Have you read this one? No. It's, yeah, it's one of the books that, like, Gabriel Garcia Marquez always said that this, that Pedro Paramo was just, like, such a huge inspiration mm. for him and for 100 Years of Solitude. And it's just, it's this wonderful novel where you're not sure who is living and who is dead, mm. which is, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you a question about 100, 100 Years of Solitude? Yeah. So, that's a Colombian novel. You're from Colombia. Is that one of those books in school, like how The Great Gatsby is here, where they like make you read it? Or is it just a book where they make you read it in America to be like, look, people in Colombia write novels? Like, is it, was it a part <laughs> of your education? Or is it just something that I think of because of the way that it's taught here? Yeah, we we read it. We and we read a lot of the of Gardner Garcia Marquez's books. 
And mm-hmm. I think something that happened in Colombia, and maybe to a degree still happens, is that the so an author who achieves success overseas mm-hmm. then automatically achieves success in the country. And so there's like this still this like very kind of like colonized mentality mm-hmm. to to literature. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so f- yeah, for that reason it feels a little weird. Just because right. up until then, um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez was still, you know, actually published the same book and then it wasn't super recognized. And then once um. it achieved success abroad, then it's like everybody got excited about it. Yeah, but, but we we read it. Um, I, I loved reading it um, in high school. Uh, and yeah, we, re- we read a lot of his other work, too. Okay. That's interesting to know. It's a very interesting to bet. Okay. What's the last book you read that was great? Um, the last book that I read that was great, uh, Hurricane Season. Oh, okay. I haven't read that yet, oh but my God. I've heard good things. I've heard really yeah. good things. I have it. It's um, it's Fernanda Melcher. M- Melcher. Yeah, I yeah. have it. Um, it's just I think what I love about it is that it it starts with this, it sounds like it's a a myth that you're reading about a witch in Mm -hmm. the forest. Mm -hmm. And it has this language to it that you, you do feel like you're in, in, in like a, yeah, a little bit of a ghost story. You're not sure like where you are entirely. Um, And then as the book goes along, everything starts to get more and more real. Um, Mm. And you realize that there's, you know, there's there's a lot of violence. You're in a real village. The witch is actually someone who's oh like, gosh. yeah. So it, so <laughs> I love the way that it suddenly kind of gathers all of this focus and like weight. And yeah, the the language is amazing. The translation is beautiful. Yeah. Do you read it? Do you read books in Spanish in Spanish or in English or both or just whatever comes to your house? Or like, how do you decide? Yeah, sometimes I will. I guess it depends if I can get my hands on the Spanish, then I will read the Spanish. And there's been times where I pick up translation and I just have a feeling that it's a bad translation. <laughs> and then we'll do my best to get the original how do you, what, what is that feeling? You start reading the translation and you're like, this book sucks. It must be the translation. Or like, <laughs> how do you know if it's the translation or if it's the original? Like, I'm so think, curious. Yeah. I think sometimes with the translation, it's like, sometimes the writing can feel a little flat. Mm. And I think where like the translation is, is good, but like there's, there's something about like the quality of writing that is just not coming across. So mm-hmm. for that, I tend to be like, I think that this is a bad translation and I, I need to look at the original. But I haven't been wrong. I haven't been wrong. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so next time I read a book in translation and I think it's flat, I'm going to be like, hey, Ingrid, um, is this just the translation? Like, The problem is I can't then switch to Spanish. Like I don't yeah. speak Spanish, so I'm just stuck with it. Right. Um, what are you reading right now? Um, I was... I just finished um, Christopher Soto's poetry book, Diaries okay. of a Terrorist. Do you know Christopher Soto? He's one of the people who started Undocu Poets. No, I don't. Yeah. I'm not really big into poetry. I'm trying. Oh. I try, but I'm not a poetry person. Like yeah. last year, I set a goal to read at least one poem a day as like a practice. And I did it except for one day. I forgot. But I haven't been reading as much poetry this year. I just, I, I, I feel so dumb. And so it's really like, 
It's like really hard. You know, when you're reading something and you feel stupid, you're just like, I don't want to do this because I feel bad about myself. (laughs) Why do you feel that way? Because I feel like I don't understand things or like my Mm. mind wanders. Like I really like Mm. a plot. I just, I struggle. It's something that I'm like working on, but I don't like (laughs) gravitate towards poetry. Do you know what I, I think when I first started to to read poetry, but I think what clicked it open for me is that I started to read to myself out loud. Mm -hmm. I do Um, that. Okay, so that really helped. And then there's there's a complete experiential part of it that is just really what you're getting from the language. And it's not really about like right or wrong, but it's about what that, your relationship to the poetry. Right. And I think, yeah, for me, like trying to live there has then Mm. just created an experience where I just really enjoy what I'm reading. And... Yeah, even like I think eventually you start to really understand understand it and it really starts to um speak to you. Yeah. I also I feel like for me with poetry like as a beginner or whatever, <laughs> whatever that means, I feel like the poems that I read it's really helpful when I can like relate to the author. Mhm. Like sometimes if I go back and I like try to read like Walt Whitman or something, I'm like, I don't, this is not for me. <laughs> so like I've, I try really hard to like read authors who are, who are, or poets who are poeting about things that I am really interested in or like curious yeah. about Yeah, that makes because sense. some, yeah, because otherwise I'm just like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, tell us about the the Soto book you were just mentioning. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's a book that it's about uh, immigration. There's like so many poems about immigration that are very beautiful. And I just found the language to be very captivating. Yeah, I just really enjoyed it. And I was just reading it on the plane and I just love to to read poetry on the plane or like when you're traveling. I just feel like mm. it's the perfect amount you know before I have to go and and do something else right what are some books that you're looking forward to reading they don't have to be brand new they could just be books that you're like really eager to get to Mm -hmm. um or they can be brand new whatever you want I just got uh the swimmers oh so good (laughs) (laughs) I love that book okay I'm excited um Yeah. yeah I just like picked it up yesterday I think Um, so good when you're on your book tour which you are right now do you end up buying a bunch of books because you go to all these bookstores yeah Yeah, I do because I I end up going to the bookstores and then I end up having conversations with the booksellers about what they're reading and what they recommend and so Mm -hmm. inevitably I just end up getting a bunch of things and then (laughs) which is great I I mean it's great I'm not complaining it's great I've I've learned to just make space in my bag Right, so that right, it, when right, I right. return, I know that I will be coming back with some with some books. <laughs> I love that. I know that you read a lot. How do you pick your next book? Like, do you read reviews? Do you just listen to friends? Is it a bookseller thing? Like, what what gets you to buy a book or pick up a book? Uh, yeah, I think yeah. If if friends tell me that they're very excited about something, I will I will get it. And yeah, talking to booksellers is another way. I, yeah, I think I trust those more or like those are the things that usually get me very excited. Um, Browsing and just seeing covers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm very like, yeah, 
I love doing that and just picking up something that for some reason is just um, calling to me. And I think that once I'm home and I'm trying to decide between all of, you know, that TBR stack, I do this thing where I just wave my hands around (laughs) and I try to like figure out energetically, which is the one that feels good. (laughs) Oh my God, that's so funny. Wait, what I was just reading. It wasn't your book. It was someone, it was some book. I can't remember what they were talking about, like a magic trick and how like when you feel the deck get hot or whatever. Oh, it was in Alexander Chi's book. I'm like, what was I just reading? It's like, that's what you do to pick your next book. Your hand yeah. gets hot and you're like, that's I, yeah. the one. <laughs> <laughs> I love that I, can, I, I read so many things. Some Like I sometimes get in these like just read, read, read zones where it's like, I'll read four different books that are like kind of related. And then I'm like, I have no idea what book I heard this from. Mm. Um, <laughs> what's a book that you like to recommend to people? One that I like to recommend to people. I mean, I think I, I recommend for for anyone who's writing uh, or a writer, I always recommend Alexander Chi's How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. Because mm-hmm. I just think it's just such a beautiful book to think about writing and to think about the life of the writer and like the connection between those things. And it's also like a craft book. It's just um, so beautiful for nonfiction. I always uh, just end up recommending woman warrior. I don't know that. Oh, by uh, Maxine Han Kingston. Have you read okay. this one? No. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a memoir that, uh, it's like the 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 subtitle of it is like a childhood among ghosts. Mm. And it starts with this telling of Kingston's uh, aunt on her dad's side who nobody talks about, who got pregnant by someone who wasn't her husband. And so she, uh, you know, it's a very shameful thing. Um, and she ended up commit- committing suicide. And so she's like this unnamed ghost. And so the story begins with thinking about um, who are the unnamed women um, and this kind of like project of like, what, what, what does it mean to like name these women? So it's like a very beautiful, um, it's a very just beautiful, beautiful book. Um, also like feels very much like, like fiction because mm-hmm. it is kind of building the, the world in that very full way. And it's dealing with with ghosts, um, yeah. but you know, but in memoir, uh, yeah. So I love that one. I always recommend that one. Okay, and then what's your ideal reading setup? Where are you? What time of day? Do you have snacks or beverages? Like, <laughs> set the scene for Ingrid's best reading day ever. Okay, I have two two things, and sometimes I will go back and forth. But I have, I don't know if you can see, but I have like this in the corner. It's like this hammock that's hanging here. Oh, okay. I, I can't it. see it, but I love this. <laughs> uh, I have it hanging up and right now it's like folded. So it just takes up no space. But mm-hmm. if I want to hang it, I just unhook it and then hang it across the room into this other hook that's across the way. So it's just like hanging in the middle of my writing room. And I just, I love reading in a hammock. It's just Mm, the best. It's just like this very, like, you're just kind of held by the hammock itself. And you can just like roll up in it a little bit. And just, Mm -hmm. it's just like very comfortable. So I really love that. And then I just, I love being in the bathtub as well. Yes. So sometimes like, I think the perfect reading day might be 
I start in the hammock and then I, you know, I get like a little achy. I'm like, oh, my back hurts because I've been in this one position. And then I go take a bath and read and then I come back to the hammock. Oh my God. I love it. I love it. Are there snacks and beverages involved? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I'm obsessed with LaCroix. Okay. So I great, have, great. Uh, yeah. A few What's your those. flavor? What's your go-to flavor? Um, Pamplemousse is the. Yes. Iconic. That's yeah. the one. That's the one. Uh, and then I think nuts and like oranges. Okay. You're a, you're a healthy snacker. I Difficult. am. Yeah. Difficult for me to relate to. <laughs> I have to say this is like, I think this might sound crazy, but I went to Colombia and I got a hammock. So oh, I think so of Colombia as a hammock place because I got a hammock there, of course. And now you saying that is making me feel like perhaps I was right in associating <laughs> No, it is a, it is very much a hammock place. Um, like my dad, I think he grew up like sleeping in a hammock. Oh, really? Um, oh, so it's yeah. like part of it's not just me being a tourist and like being in like yeah, yeah. downtown Cartagena and being like, I want a hammock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like a very it's a very comfortable thing. Um, yeah, people have been like sleeping in it for thousands of years. They're beautiful. We just yeah, we love hammocks. I think I, my I'm aunt. Too has this huge hammock that um, like six people can be in it. It just like takes oh that gosh. much weight and it's so big. Um, but yeah, but then you can all just be in the hammock. It's just kind of, the hammocks are amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. I love a hammock. I love a hammock. Okay, we'll do our quick little speed round, which is what's the last book that made you laugh? The last book that made me laugh. Oh, um, Prayers of the Stolen. Okay. Have you read this what's- one? Oh, no. sorry. Yeah. We have, you and I have like no reading overlap, I feel like. <laughs> like I've read nothing that you've read, um, which is fine. I always need to be adding to my TBR. Uh, what's the last book that made you cry? Maybe, yeah, what was I reading? Uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison, oh. which I just recently read. I hadn't read it before. I've read that. So that's our overlap, Beloved. Yeah. <laughs> um, we did an episode of Beloved on for the book club on this show and – it is probably my favorite book club episode ever. It is Ugh. Damaris Hill. I'm I am the idiot on the episode, but Damaris Hill just holy cow. She like breaks the book wide open. It's so good. Anyways, what's the last book where you felt like you learned a lot? I think uh Luster, uh mm. Raymond Milani's book. I just really loved her sense of, of pace and rhythm in that book and I think the the way that she what all that she was doing with language was just amazing. So I think that yeah. I I was reading and I I felt like I was learning a lot from it. I love that. What about a book that you're embarrassed that you've never read? Embarrassed that I've never read. I don't know. I came to like writing later in life, so I don't have. Yeah, and I you know. I think that I learned a lot of writing from like oral storytelling, actually. Mm. Um, so I think that there's there's actually like a, a a lot of like classic books that I haven't read, but I the ones that I've been trying to focus on is I was trying to read all of Toni Morrison's books. Mm-hmm. I haven't read Love, which is one that I really wanted to read, but I don't know if I have like a sense of embarrassment about any of the ones that I haven't read. Right. Yet. Yeah, I get that. Okay. What's your favorite book about where you're from? Mm. I think recently, um, 
Patricia Engel's uh, last book. Do you know Patricia Engel? I do know, but I don't know the last book. I can link it in the show notes, though, so we'll put something in there. Um, I'm forgetting the name for some reason right now. But it's, it's a novel, and it's about a girl who is in this correctional school um and she you know has to has to flee um and it's like this um it's a book about like her journey and I just really love you know Patricia Engel in general um as a as a writer who's like writing about Colombia yeah it's, it's probably like among my favorite I would also say Hilar Quintana who's a uh, writer from the Caribbean, like in you know Cartagena, I think she's from Cartagena, and she her book is called La Perra, which I in English I think it was translated to the bitch, okay. and it's just like this. It it's a beautiful novel about what life is like for women um, at the coast, um, mm. and it's a lot about grief and race and gender, and it's just it's like it's beautiful. It's a beautiful book. Okay, I only have two questions left. If you were a high school English teacher, what book would you make your class read? <laughs> I think I would I would probably choose Clarice Lispector just to see what happens. Like what happens if I just like give them like the star? Like what would happen? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that book, so I don't know what that means, but it sounds very deviant of you. I'm very interested. <laughs> um, okay, and this is the last one. I stole it from the New York Times by the book. If you were could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would it be? Oh, um, I would actually require that he read um, Postcolonial Love Poem and that he do it in the bathtub. I was just going to say, he has to get, Joe, Joe, yeah. you got to get in the bath, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Everybody at home. Ingrid's book is called The Man Who Could Move Clouds. It's out now in the world. You can get it wherever you get your books. If you've already read it, you should consider getting her novel, Fruit of the Drunken Tree. That exists too. Do a a novel, do a fiction and a nonfiction back-to-back moment, a book pairing. Ingrid will be back on August 31st. We will be discussing how to write an autobiographical novel by Alexander Chi. I'm very excited to talk about it because Ingrid is, in fact, a writer and I am, in fact, not a writer. (laughs) So there's going to be lots to talk about. And we're going to get into a bunch of stuff in that book, including the role of the reader and the role of the writer, which is what I really want to talk about. Ingrid, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. This was so lovely. I had a great time. Yay, me too. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us this week. Thank you so much to Ingrid for being my guest. And also a quick thank you to Trisha Kaye for helping make this interview possible. Ingrid will be back on August 31st to discuss the Stacks Book Club pick, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel by Alexander Chee. If you love this show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you're listening to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, the stacks 
This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Thank you.